Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Sad day. Stan Lee passed this afternoon. Given the news of the last few months, I think we all saw it coming. But it's still shocking, and it's still going to be a hole in the comic book pop culture world without Stan Lee in it. Think of the many fan generations that Stanley represented as a mentor, a father figure in the pop culture world, a friendly face, a friendly voice in the case of voicing uh, the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends cartoons, certainly a voice we would hear at comic book conventions, countless video and audio interviews. He was the embodiment of Marvel Comics. He made Marvel Comics his own. Long after he had been contributing to Marvel with his writing, his editorial style, and his day-to-day work at the company, he continued as a goodwill ambassador up until his death. Every year into his mid-90s, he was still coming to conventions, still making public speeches and having on-stage interviews. And I'm sure all of us were saying, how does he keep doing it? It's amazing. We'd think of our own grandparents or parents and say, God, you know, I mean, he's still working. He he still seems to enjoy it and, and has this joy of what he does that he presents on stage in a way that I think a lot of people, older people didn't. And I think maybe that's why in this last year when he was struggling and uh, his uh, guardianship and the care of him, his day-to-day care was under such debate and uh, scrutiny that I, I can't imagine the stress he might have been feeling in his final months. So in that respect, I am glad that he's finally at rest. Ironic timing today. I had already scheduled an interview with Fred Van Lenty because Fred has a great new book out called The Con Artist, a great novel about a murder mystery that happens at San Diego Comic-Con. And that was going to be the primary focus of my discussion with Fred today. But given his own unique position as a former Marvel writer himself uh, and also a great historian, he and Ryan Dunleavy uh, doing the comic book history of comics, an excellent uh, series that Stan obviously played a huge part in. Uh, It was time to tap Fred's own knowledge of the comic book history and Stan Lee's important part in it. Uh, to discuss that and have that be the primary part of the discussion. We do talk about the the novel, The Carn Artist. It's from Quirk Books, and I highly recommend it. It's an excellent idea for a Christmas gift as we head into the holiday season. But again, uh, with the passing of Stan, we, we couldn't pass it by. So uh, uh, we had to juggle a few things as far as scheduling of uh, dropping episodes and uh, instead had this conversation this afternoon with Fred about primarily Stan Lee. And, uh, we, you know, we talk about all the positive things, but we also acknowledge some of the things that, uh, you know, Stan also, uh, you know, the various relationships that started well but ended badly with uh, Steve Ditko and uh, Jack Kirby. And um, he was a complex man. And it's funny because I've been examining the career of Orson Welles, another complex man, another man that had uh, relationships sour at the end as well, but a fascinating creative force, again, just like Stan. That's why this episode is called The Unauthorized History of Stan Lee, a good conversation with Fred Van Lenty to talk about the life and legacy of Stan Lee on today's Word Balloon. Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, League, for your support. Um, I try to provide a different sort of uh, podcast here at Word Balloon, 
in many ways uh, a lot different than some of the other podcasts out there that review books and have a big group of people, you know, and uh, sometimes we get interesting in-depth conversations. And I think today's episode is a prime example of that. Word Balloon is free. I keep saying it and I mean it. It will always be free. But if you like Word Balloon, if you like what I do here and would like to help the cause and can afford it, especially in this tough economy, as Artie always likes to make fun of Art Balthazar when I say, I know things are hard. I do know things are hard. They're hard for me as well. But if you enjoy Word Balloon, if you think it enhances your love of uh, comic books and the pop culture hobbies, and you want to help out the cause, you can help by subscribing to Word Balloon. You can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon or go to wordballoon.com and click on the Patreon ad. Thank you very much, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by Aftershock Comics. They're shaking things up at your local comic shop right now. And again, this being the holiday season, this is the perfect time to sample Aftershock Comics, not only for yourself, but find a great comic book gift for somebody with one of their series. And that way, it's something new that they may not be reading now, but could easily get hooked into because there are incredible genres that are covered by some of your favorite comic book creators. Books like Animosity by Marguerite Bennett and Raphael de la Tour, Donnie Cates and Gary Brown with Baby Teeth, A Walk Through Hell by Garth Ennis and Goran Suzuka, other exciting new titles as well, like Beyonders by Paul Jenkins and Wesley St. Clair, Lollipop Kids from Adam and Aiden Glass and Diego Yapur, The Brothers Jack Cool by Cullen Bunn and Mirko Kolak, some of the great examples. You can shop there now and not only get uh, full descriptions of their books, but also preview pages and the diamond codes on these books to order them through your local shop at AfterShockComics.com. All right, let's get into our conversation now with Fred Van Lanty discussing the life and times of one of the biggest, if not the biggest, force in comics, the great Stan Lee, on today's Word Balloon. Fred Van Lenty, welcome back to Word Balloon. Somber day. Uh, we lost uh, Stan Lee. Uh, the news came out just uh, a couple hours ago, and I appreciate you still coming on and us doing yep. this conversation. No problem. Glad to be here. So, yeah, if we would, let's take a moment and, and talk about Stan. Ironic, you just wrapped up a, a BBC Radio, uh, I'm assuming, interview about it. <laughs> yes, it's it's the power of Twitter. I had a producer call me or email me and, and be like, uh, I see used to work for Marvel. Would you like to come talk about Stan Lee? And I was like, me and about several thousand other people have done that. But yeah, sure. Uh, but I was able to tell her about my background with the comic book history of comics. And so I could speak sort of yes. from the history aspect of it. I did not mention the play King Kirby that Crystal Skillman and I wrote together about the life of Jack Kirby, which is perhaps a less flattering view of Stan and therefore maybe would be inappropriate to bring up uh, at uh, this time. But uh, or not. I mean, I feel like we gave him a pretty, pretty fair shot, but he's a complex figure, you know, Absolutely, uh, man. he's uh, one of the most important in comics history. And there's just no denying that. Well, and again, it is that complication that that made him interesting. And um, it's it is part of the story. And again, it takes nothing away from honoring his impact on the industry and and his importance to the industry and his uh, place as a goodwill ambassador for the industry for decades. I've been posting old YouTube videos of uh, his uh, 1968 television show that he was a moderator of. I'm not even sure what the uh, if it was a local New York thing or, or how it was made, but also uh, his appearance on To Tell the Truth, the, uh, the game show. 
Okay. And, and uh, it was very interesting because they always start whenever they do the, you know, that's where if you people who don't know your game shows, your old game shows, they would have three people on. They would all claim to be the same person. The panel would ask them questions and determine who the real person was. So there were two other Stanleys. It's great to watch. And um, it always starts with the, with the game show host giving uh, a preamble of, like, who the guy is, what he believes, whatever. And it's, it's written by the actual person. And it was great. It was Stan talking about how comic books have evolved and are very relevant uh, in today's pop culture. And, you know, again, in 1971 – and this was around the time that uh, I think the Spider-Man uh, drug issues uh, probably came out. And so okay. I think he was pretty Sounds proud. Right. Of, yeah, I think he was proud of his uh, contribution to the discussion about kids and drugs. Um, so, yeah, it was great. It's a it's a great little segment. And, and it's, you know, it's vital, Stan. It's 1971, Stan. Right. Yeah. So it's it's pretty cool to see. And, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, so, we yeah, let's get let's let's get into it. Had you ever met him? Uh, it's the first thing the BBC asked me. No, I did not. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, honestly, I never got – I mean, I saw him a million times, as we obviously both did, at various conventions. I couldn't get close to him. And um, given the, uh, the the nature of the, the comic book uh, history of comics, I, I wanted to ask let's, – let's, let's do a quick little biographical scan. I, I love the fact that he started at his uh, Uncle Martin's uh, company, Timely. And was kind of this office gopher, and really was working for. Well, but it starts before then, really. If you Tell think me about it, he went to the same Bronx school that uh, Bob Kane and Will Eisner went to. That's so that was right, fertile high school in the, in the Bronx. Um, so he knew all the a lot of those guys that 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 seminal. Even though he was much younger than those guys, Kirby, I believe, was seven, 1917 or nineteen eighteen, and uh, Stan was born in twenty two. So he was a bit younger than those guys, but like you know, a high school class. But so he knew a lot of those guys growing up uh, and then even while still in high school, ended up working for his cousin-in-law, I believe, was was what Martin Goodman was. was. Yeah. Goodman had started out at, like a lot of the comic book publishers exclusively as a um, uh, pulp publisher. Mm hmm. Their most, you know, sort of their most famous character that went in the comics was so the, Goodman throughout his entire career as a publisher basically stuck to this idea of imi- that imitation is the purest form of of, publi- of publishing. Uh, so you know his first big pulp character was Kazar, right? Yes. Uh, who all Marvel fans know, but obviously is a ripoff of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan. No question. And so it wasn't really until uh, Goodman brought in the services of Funny Zinc, which was the packager where Carl Bugros and Bill Everett worked. And they created Human Torch and Submariner. Then obviously they brought in most famously Joe Simon and Jack Kirby to create Captain America. I think that they hadn't brought in those creators. Marvel, Timely slash Atlas slash Marvel would just start like churning. It would have just churned out, you know, they would have been the Hydrox to DC's Oreos. You know what I mean? (laughs) You know, they would just keep cranking out, you know. Off, off brand versions, knockoffs, yeah. yeah, like like phony Jordashes or something, you know, absolutely <laughs> pedal the old Soviet Union, you know, like they were so imitative that when Stan and uh, so there's another famous character, Patsy, uh, I someone said Patsy Klein, Patsy Walker, you know, yes. I guess who appears in the Jessica Jones, uh, uh yeah, and uh, and of course Hellcat as well, yeah, it was Hellcat, but she started out as an Archie ripoff, yep. Archie was was America's top teenager. Patsy Walker was 
America's number one teenager, except the genders were swapped, right? She was a redhead girl instead of a redheaded boy, and she had these blonde and brunette male love interests. Um, <laughs> did she have? I, did she have the tic tac? Did, did she have the tic tac toe? Uh... Yeah, because Al Jaffe said Stan made him put it on. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> but I'm actually jumping ahead a little bit. So you know, Lee wanted to be a writer. And his birth name is Stanley Lieber. His first published comics work was, I believe, in Captain America Comics 3. It was a text page. Yes, I love that. Let's stop for a second. Let's sure. stop for a second because I do love that that um, those text pieces were there so that the comic books would qualify for a postage, postage a magazine rate. rate. Yes, exactly. And, and so, yeah, so, that, so sus- subscriptions would be cheaper. And, and yeah, so literally it was filler. And I and I am always fascinated by those golden age text pieces because they are they're like every possible genre. But Stan's first story was a Captain America text story. Yes, Captain America foils the traitor's revenge. <laughs> Two pages of pulse pounding, star spangled action. True believer. That's right. Uh, <laughs> and so you know, Kirby claimed that that, that Stan was sort of a. a, a kind of an obnoxious kid who would like play the flute yeah. in the office while he and the others were trying to work and was generally just a, just sort of a pest. And, you know, given how badly their relationship soured in both men's later years, you know, you sort of take that with a grain of salt, but I can sort of see Stan considering how hyperactive he was when he was 93. Um, you know, I can certainly see him being a little difficult to take as a teenager. Absolutely. Well, no, and I'm glad you said that because, you know, people can go through the archive. I I almost considered going through it, but it kind of is needle in a haystack. I didn't think to uh, hashtag a lot of the subjects we covered. But Bendis on one of the Bendis tapes was talking about, I think it was the line of characters that Stan created for Boom in the last few years. And he uh, among the writers that he turned to to potentially flesh these out, Paul Jenkins, I know, ended up working with him on those. I believe it was Paul. But um, – but, uh, Brian, you know, he pitched Brian. And this was, you know, Stan in his very late 80s, maybe 90. You know, it was about eight or between five and eight years ago when they were doing this. Mm-hmm. And and Brian was really candid and is like, this was a very still very strong young mind pitching me these ideas. And it wasn't, right. you know, you know, like as unfortunately, I, I'm sure – Given uh, the accounts of people like Todd McFarlane, who saw him in his last months, you know, was like, hey, this is an old man. And he goes, you know, God, I felt a lot better after seeing him, given all that we have heard in the last year in the press about his home care and guardianship and, uh, you know, fights between uh, business people that he had been working with for years and also his daughter. Um, People can go online and read the details of that. So, yeah, it's um, but but yeah, that he really was vital. And and like you say, probably as hyperactive as a kid as as he was, you know, even in his later years, still pitching stories. And, you know, I hope at some point, too, that much like Kirby has been. Uh, the, we've we've examined those last years of Kirby creations, whether they were for animation or some of the later comic stuff like Silver Star and some of the other characters, that um, we do get a comprehensive look at those last group of characters that Stan created for both the animation and the comics. And I'm not saying that this stuff was Hamlet, but it is interesting to see, you know, the last works of, of any great creator. 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not familiar with the Boom stuff. I, Silver Star, I think, is some of the best thing. Maybe not. You know, his his eyesight was going, but Silver Star is pretty nuts. I, I really well, yeah. Like well, and that's Star. the thing. You know, Stan, being the writer, had to rely on animators and these other artists to realize these last characters. And that's what I'm saying. I'm not. I'm not. You know, I'm not saying this is going to be gold here or anything. Sure. Like that. It might be like Mae West Sextet from from the '70s, her final film. You know, that guy compared to what not- you know. One of the reasons I love going on the show so much is is you your ability to stump me. Like I should just have a pad and just write down all these things that you're. That I'm going to later YouTube to know what the heck you're talking. About. <laughs> well, you know, Anaria, here's a more contemporary version, Freddie. Although again, this is going to be a '70s thing, but it's out on Netflix. You know, Orson Welles' last film. They finally untangled all the rights. Sure. And other side of the wind is. Oh, that's on right. Yes. Yeah. And the and the documentary and the documentary is incredible. I haven't had a chance to really sit down and watch. The, the movie itself yet. Right. Oh, my God. The documentary was fascinating. And that's the thing. That's what I mean is that that last period when he was so creative still and still trying to pitch ideas, um, you know, just things like that. But all right, let's get back to the, you know, the early years. So, sure. Yes, so he's so he's, you know, kind of the office boy at Timely and, and kind of a gopher for for Jack and uh, and and, sure. and Joe Simon. He would famously – Martin Goodman, by the way, is the founder of Marvel. Sorry, I just threw that name out there as if everyone listening knows who that is. Martin Goodman, who is several year, decades, I think, older than Stan, um, uh, founded Marvel. Timely. Yeah. Uh, timely, that's right. Originally it was Timely, and it's still Timely at this point. So basically Stan's immediate bosses are Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, who famously got canned from Timely because they were convinced that – Martin Goodman was cheating them out of Captain America money, which is probably true, and uh, started yeah. start working at DC behind their backs, creating uh, first Newsboy Legion and The Guardian and um, Sandman and Manhunter. Boys uh, Comics, Boy Commandos, all that well, stuff. That's after they got fired. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> they were literally renting out a hotel room down the street from time the Timely offices, and they would go during their lunch break, draw an entire other comics line for DC, and then come back and keep working on Captain America comics. Crazy. So uh, Stan, the way the story that Jack tells is that Stan knew about this and then outed, ratted them out to uh, to Martin, his cousin. We have no way of knowing whether that's true or not. We do know that they got fired, and then Stan basically got promoted. In Joe, Joe Simon was essentially the editor in chief of Marvel at that point, and really the first editor in chief at Marvel. And then Stan got the job, and he basically held the job. Uh, a really long time. <laughs> yeah, till like the early 70s when he kind of stepped aside as as editor-in-chief and was like, I'm going to L.A. to, you know, open doors for Marvel and, and try and get us in the TV and movie business. Well, he went – the interruption in least uh, tenure at Marvel was the war. Uh, of course, I yes. I believe he volunteered, unlike Jack Kirby, got drafted. Um, and he went, he didn't, he never left the country. He was in, I don't think he ever left New York except maybe for basic training. He was working on a, uh, they were making like, you know, VD pamphlets, anti VD pamphlets and, and, uh, Frank Capra and, uh, Charles Adams of the Adams family fame also worked in that unit. And he had the poster that he was always very proud of VD, not me. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, Interesting accomplishment. And so a guy named Vince Fago – Fago? Yeah, Vince Fago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a guy named Vince Fago took over as editor-in-chief of Marvel in Stan's absence. And at that period, Marvel 
the the, super, the superheroes were already kind of dying off as the war was ending, and so they sort of transitioned. Marvel became really the, – the, the other thing that big was Dell's Disney comics. So yes. um, Marvel quickly became – uh, the leader in the the second second in the field, you know, which is sort of their mo of animal, of funny animal comics. Yep. Uh, the other great, the other and uh, another person who was working a lot of Marvel at the time was a woman by the name of Patricia Highsmith, author of Strangers on Train and the talent of Mister Ripley and all that stuff. That a and uh, uh, Vince Fago set up uh, Patricia Highsmith and Stanley on a blind date. I had no idea. That's amazing. And- and this is in the, his great biography of Highsmith. I read uh, where she interviews the inter, the writer interviews Vince Fago, and Fago Fago said the, but uh, she wasn't in the closet. But uh, she British Highsmith didn't advertise to her male coworkers that she was gay. Wow! And so this blind date did not go well. Uh, and I'm quoting Vince Vega directly. It's because it didn't go well because Patricia Highsmith was into girls and Stan Lee is only into Stan Lee. <laughs> I, you know, exactly. And I'm shrugging right now. And that's, again, part of the story, man. There you go. No disrespect, but absolutely. It's like this is who Stan Lee was. And I appreciate yeah. this level of conversation because I'm sure that there are going to be plenty of blogs and podcasts that are going to be, you know, nothing but the gold. And that's Eight fine. That's t- that's yeah, and that's totally I'm fine. Geography guy. So, um, <laughs> so as everybody knows, in the fifties, the comics industry went through one of its, its worst periods, where they were being attacked uh, by uh, psychiatrists, mainly Frederick Wortham. They were being hauled in, into the Senate to testify about juvenile delinquency and the, the, uh, various antitrust uh, suits brought by the government made a lot of distributors collapse, uh, magazine and newspaper distributors. And so the uh, uh, the industry really took a hit, yeah. and many publishers went out of business. And uh, so there was downsizing at what was now Atlas. The name of the uh, company kept changing, and the yeah. parent company kept changing, partly because uh, this was some sort of tax evasion scheme on Goodman's part. Oh, I didn't realize that was why. Oh, yeah, I just kind yeah, of assumed yeah. freshen it's, up freshen up the product and put it out no, under a different name. It's to confuse the hell out of the auditors. Is Hilarious. This is what the purpose of that was. Of course So, was. So uh, <laughs> Martin one day told Stan to fire everyone at Marvel but himself. And he told uh, Stan to do this and – then immediately left for Florida <laughs> to go on vacation, to leave Stan by himself to fire all of his coworkers, which he did, yeah. leaving Stan the only – basically the sole remaining editor, production – you know, not production guy. But, you know, they had – the only real employee of Marvel at that point was Stan. Yeah, which is and, insane. Yeah. And so in the late 50s, it was all freelance uh, artists and uh, they couldn't really afford – there was a partly it was it was that, he, that you couldn't afford really to hire writers. Also, it was that Stan also got paid. It was an extra source of income for him, obviously, sure. to be paid to write comics. So uh, this is how the Marvel method came about, which is that you have an idea for one of these crazies. So Marvel went through a row, very heavy romance. They became the second biggest romance publisher. Yes, uh, they came. They became the second biggest Western publisher. That, and- and- Second biggest horror publisher, actually. Second biggest horror publisher. And then towards the end of the 50s, when Godzilla was big, they became, 
I guess the biggest kaiju comics publisher that was That's, certainly a niche of a niche. I have never heard it described that way, but you're 100 percent right. I always thought of it more as that late 50s sci-fi period where giant roaches and giant spiders were in the yeah. movies and Stan was doing the same thing in kind in the comics. But also, yeah, you're right. Coming up with all the kaiju monsters, Gorgo, Monstro, all that stuff. Yeah, so they'd come up with titles, and then they'd say Stan and Steve Ditko had come from Pennsylvania at that point. He was a very young man at that point. Uh, Jack had gotten into a lawsuit with his DC editor, never a good look, and so had to leave DC, which where he had been for for much of this time, uh, off and on. And uh, so he wound up back in Marvel again. And so the the teenager who was playing the flute on the on the filing cabinet in the forties is now his boss. Can I? And I'm going to stop you again because literally my favorite panel of the comic book history of comics is Ryan's drawing of Stan welcoming Jack yeah. back to Marvel yeah, sure. and just the, the disgust on, on poor Jack's face Absolutely. And, and just beaming Stan. Welcome back, Jack, baby. Oh. Absolutely. <laughs> so go on. You're killing me. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, well, and then they usher in. I mean, uh, uh, well, he gets fed up. I'll take over the bit of the story, and you correct me if I'm wrong, because a lot of this might be apocryphal. Stan's version of the story is wasn't happy, thinking about leaving the company. Yeah, so so Martin comes back after they've been cranking out these kaiju comics and is like, hey, and this the, the story, whether it's true or not, who knows, is that he had went golfing with a DC executive by the name of Jack Leibowitz, although apparently that they, those two did not really know each other and they never would have played right. golf. So that sports story is probably BS, but whatever. It's still a better story. So until <laughs> <laughs> someone gives you the real version, I'm just going to keep repeating it. Uh, supposedly, uh, Leibowitz was confessing to, to Martin Goodman about how well justice league of America was selling because that was a brand new title in 60, yep. 59. I think it was probably first a showcase title. Raven right? bold, but yeah, absolutely. Raven bold. Fair yep. enough. Uh, and uh, and so immediately Martin busts into Stan's office. Like, hey, now we're doing superheroes again. And 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 you know Stan says he was like, forget it. I'm sick of this hamster wheel. Uh, I'm jumping off. And uh, uh, his wife said, well, if you're going to quit anyway, you know, why don't you, you know, do something you would want to see? Jack Kirby's version of the story is he comes into the yes, office tell me. and they're taking the furniture out and Stan is sitting behind a, a desk weep, or sitting behind, I guess, not a desk, right? Because they took it out, sitting in what remains of the chairs, weeping. And, and Jack is like, don't worry, we'll do a superhero comic and we'll, we'll make it all better. Um, and the result, obviously, was the Fantastic Four, a comic that looks a lot like Jack's last book for DC, Challenges the Unknown. Absolutely. Uh, but you know what made it different was the characterizations and yes. uh, and the concept of the thing is sort of a monster character and so the thing so regardless of whose idea it was Stan or Jack to have the, one of the three one of the Fantastic Four be a monster it clearly was an attempt to it's part of Marvel's overall corporate tradition of copying things yes. Because the thing was just a heroic version of a, of a shorter kaiju, right? And then, and then obviously in the first few issues, what you know, what did the Fantastic Four fight in the first issue? Kaiju, you know, brought up by the Mole Man, you know, right? So, Absolutely. So uh, this was very much a melding of the minds. Um, the the monster s- superhero was was the big hit. The thing was the big star of Fantastic Four. So they bring out the Hulk, you know, which is a straight up monster superhero, but with more of a Jekyll Hyde bent. Absolutely. Uh, and, and initially a failure for six issues yes. did not sell well. 
contrary, and I think I just said that in the BBC, which I so I, I lied. I lied to the British. I apologize. You know, <laughs> it's such it's such a it's such a common thing to say. Oh, they were all hits. No, they weren't. <laughs> just when they create something, they, they never let it go. Right. So the Hulk bombed, but then they stuck him in the Avengers and they stuck him in Fantastic Four and they tried to gin it up, you know. And then you have Thor, who's the god superhero. You have Spider Man, who's the teenager superhero, which was which sounds like a no brainer to us now, but was very influential. That was also largely influential because the second most popular character in the Fantastic Four is the Human Torch. So yeah, yeah. Peter Parker was essentially sort of a a, a Human Torch with Jewish guilt added. Um, <laughs> Uncle Ben. And then there was a wizard superhero, which may or may not have completely been Steve Ditko's idea. But but you ever hear, uh, you ever hear Alan Moore? Alan Moore was on uh, a show on the BBC Radio. It was a great show, and now the name of it is is uh, escaping me. But the comedian Stuart Lee was interviewing Alan, and he was talking about um, the Marvel, uh, you know. Uh, the way that he wrote Marvel superheroes, he's like, you know, Stan Lee was influential because all of a sudden these superheroes had flaws like a bad leg. I mean, he obviously Don Blake, but like, you know, it's true. That, yes. So, so along with the angst and the guilt of, you know, it was those psychoses that and real world problems, you know, God, I, I, truly Spider-Man worrying just as much about capturing the lizard as he was getting cold medicine for Aunt May. Sure. You and, know, or, or, or washing his washing the Spider-Man uniform in a laundromat. It's just little touches like that that, again, I don't know how – now something like that, that kind of scene, well, how much know, of the, that was Ditko and how much of that was Stan. I mean the comparison to that is is like, uh, you know, the DC heroes are all largely variations of Superman, right? So right. the Perfect. Flash is fast Superman. Wonder Woman is girl Superman. Uh, Green Lantern is, I don't know what the hell that's supposed to be, Superman. <laughs> <laughs> what were they smoking when they came with Green Lantern? I love Green Lantern. Uh, anyway, uh, but yeah, but but then the high concepts became a lot higher. That makes any sense. In Marvel, because they were more core, they were not power, the high concepts were the, were in the secret identities, not the power set, right? So they moved from the power set to like, Iron Man, who is Howard Hughes, is a superhero, you know. Right. Uh, Daredevil, blind guy, is superhero. You know what I mean? So, so they kind of they kind of tried to ride that train for as long as possible. Yes, and and you know, Slot always says, and I love this, and he said it once on Word Balloon. Put all the Justice League on a bus, have the bus go into a tunnel, and have the panel be pitch black, and have nothing but word balloons. You wouldn't know who was speaking. You really wouldn't know if it was Hawkman or Green Arrow or Green Lantern or whatever or the Atom. And and yet with Marvel, the Hulk was always angry. Reed was always kind of lofty. Johnny was a wisecracking teenager. The thing was, you know, Jimmy Durante or William Bendix as a monster. And, I mean, uh, yeah, it was great. I mean, it, no, they really were distinct characters. And it and it did it 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 evolved and I'm glad you mentioned Daredevil because that's another thing let's let's give you know some props to Stan creating Daredevil creating you know I mean so you know a nod to the disabled at a very interesting time um, you know certainly the creation of characters of color that uh, you know came with the Black Panther and I mean that's the thing I really you know and even you know I never I never heard definitively if the mutants were a true parable. Of minority, you know, uh, and and uh, just any sort of xenophobia and everything. I, I mean, I think only in the sense of you know, sort of the Rod Serling Twilight Zone of it all. I don't think 
they were necessarily thinking race prejudice. I'm but with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, I mean, by that point, it was a common enough trope in science fiction. And Kirby was, by all accounts, a voracious, obsessive reader of science fiction. Science no fiction question. Particularly. Yes. Um, so, you know, another so, but again, these comics are all being created by the Marvel method, which is where, yes, at best, the uh, artists are getting a piece of paper with a plot on it. But very soon, even that got phased out, and it became, yep. I'm verbally telling you what it is. Then it became, just do something like this, and it'll be fine. Right, or even I know John Romita Sr. used to say he would come up with plots for Spider-Man when he was drawing it. They all would. Yeah, and, and then – Some people – like Gil Kane, for example, was somebody who really loved it and found it very liberating. And then the artist would bring the art in. Kirby would famously write down suggestions as to what he wanted the dialogue to be. Stan would often ignore those, <laughs> just do his own sure. thing. And then Stan would add the dialogue. Uh, I assumed he dictated it to somebody. Um, I don't know if he was dictating it literally to the letter, maybe. I don't really know how that works. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that actually is something I'd be fascinated to find out, uh, whether he did a secretary do it or whatever. Yeah, Flo um, did it. Yeah, yeah. and it Flo Steinberg, sure. And then she handed it off to Artie Semek or whoever it was. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, so some artists like Gil Kane and John Romita Sr. really appreciated this this model and really loved it. You know, guys like Dick Cohen Lee or, and, and Kirby became increasingly frustrated by – what was then obviously Stan's uh, predilection towards self-promotion. Yes. And they found it very offensive, and it destroyed the Ditko-Lee relationship first. Ditko, of course, uh, who I believe we also lost this year, um, yeah. was a famously prickly personality, um, really oil and water. So it's not sort of surprised, surprising that um, they, they had a falling out. Uh, Stan, I think, knew that that he was maybe taking too much of the credit, so he started sl- – so very quickly, the credits in Fantastic Four after Ditko leaves becomes – it used to say written by Stan Lee, drawn by Jack Kirby, then very quickly becomes by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Yep. Um, but Kirby was still annoyed and stopped creating characters for Marvel – and instead defected to DC again for <laughs> the second time in his career, secretly creating books for uh, DC, you know, at home when he wasn't working on Marvel stuff. And so he left and, and to do New Gods. Yes. And uh, that defection is about the point where Lee starts coming out with his books, which really are what cemented his legacy in a lot of ways, like the Origin of Marvel Comics and the Son of Origins and all that yes, stuff. Yes, they're incredible. And, I, and you know, honestly – among my first Marvels as a little kid. I mean, it was those in a couple of the Treasury editions. Yeah, man. And, I, you know, yeah, that's when I learned about Nick Fury. That's when I learned about Doctor Strange um, sure. in Son and of War. You know, and, and the text, when you're a child, you're just like, oh, Stan Lee did all of this. That's great. You know, then you look at it later and, and you sort of – and you hear the other side is the story. You look back at those books and you're like, you know, how true, quote, unquote, truthful they are is is – is questionable because there's a lot of sort of dancing around about who really did what. What you need to remember is that at that time, I believe also at this time, Marvel was having a lot of problems. Uh, this is about the time they slashed the page counts in the books down to 16 pages. That's right. 
the seventies were becoming brutal on all sorts of periodicals and magazines because people were, you know, the TV had become completely ensconced in American life. Right. Comics were, and really all reading material was starting to dwindle as a mass medium. And, uh, and I believe this is the time when Martin Goodman broke with Marvel. I think they sold Marvel to cadence, to cadence. And then Martin went and founded his own comic book company. Atlas Seaboard. Yes. Yes. Just talk to, uh, uh, Bob Greenberger, who uh, is friends with Jeff uh, Rowan or Rovin, and Jeff Rovin was kind of the Stan Lee of of Atlas Seaboard, and I, it's a fascinating, very brief company that Martin created, and some very weird and interesting uh, characters. Right, yeah, 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 and uh, and at about 1972, the year I was born. Uh, yeah, that a boy. Lee, Lee stopped being – this is – Lee became publisher, quote-unquote, of Marvel and not editor-in-chief. And, right. and this is sort of when the whole sort of regime of the banner on the splash pages that said – that gave you the origin of the superhero and then, you know, and now Steve Rogers known as Captain America, you know, Stanley Presents. Yeah. Stanley Presents, absolutely, yes. Um, and, and the soapbox, of course, too. I don't know when the soapbox started. Soapbox, soapbox is much earlier. Yeah, the soapbox starts. Well, and even in the letter columns, you know, they at a certain point, it, it clearly stands voice in the letter columns, even when it just says editors. You know, the the the, the little responses, yes. the letter columns, just says editors. But then ultimately, I think they gave that up and kind of went straight for implying directly or indirectly that it was Stan Lee. So, I mean, from so so for my entire lifetime, literally, Stan has been the goodwill ambassador for for Marvel. He's been the, you know, the public face of Marvel. He's been the uh, booster of Marvel. He's the most famous comic book creator who ever lived. I think that's an incontrovertible statement. Absolutely. I would completely uh, agree. Because and partly because he has this very gregarious personality. He's very much he's got the kind of ringmaster thing going on. I keep trying to resist the the urge to compare him to our current president in that terms of uh, of, of self uh Promotion, promote. Yeah, but I, but in a much more benign way, obviously. In a much but... <laughs> more benign way, absolutely. Let's take a break here from our conversation with Fred Van Lenty about the life and times of Stan Lee, and talk a little bit more about our sponsor, Aftershock Comics. Now, I know you've seen those Aftershock books on the racks of your favorite comic shop, a whole slew of fresh high concepts written and drawn by your favorite creators. You can get things like the Spy Series, Jimmy's Bastards from Garth Ennis and Russ Brown, Frank Thierry and Oleg Okunev with Pestilence. The 14th century Black Plague is revealed to be the first zombie outbreak. Or the early years of Vlad the Impaler, the brothers Jack Cool from Cullen Bunn and Mirko Kolak. These are great books, and again, it's the holiday season and this is a great time to sample Aftershock Comics, not only for yourself, but for that uh, comic book reader in your life that uh, might not know about these great series and uh, find a new one to enjoy. Great trades, great monthly books to check out now. Um, I would suggest the trade Monstro Mechanica from Paul Aller and Chris Evenweiss. That is this great uh, Leonardo da Vinci story with his female apprentice, Isabel, and their wooden robot, Monstro Mechanica. The collected trade is available. Great art book. You can get the art of Jim Starlin through Aftershock as well. But there are plenty of genres and great stories waiting for you to sample now. If you go to their website, you will find amazing stories that I'm sure will fit the interests 
of that certain someone in your life that it's time to purchase a great new graphic novel or uh, sample a new uh, bunch of Aftershock comics and give them a grab bag of a bunch of these things. We're going to be talking more with more Aftershock creators in the days and weeks ahead as we uh, go through the holidays. But you don't have to wait to hear about these books. You can check out full story descriptions, preview pages, and the diamond codes on these books to order through your local shop at AftershockComics.com. All right, let's get back to our conversation now with Fred Van Lenty about the life and times of Stan Lee on Word Balloon. And also, let's pull it back because you can say, too, that it was because of this promotion that Stan kind of cultivated the second wave of comic fandom. Because certainly there were those people like Roy Thomas and uh, I'm not going to remember a lot of the fancy writers' names, but uh, Bill Shelley is one that comes to mind immediately and Maggie Thompson. And so there were those kind of comic book fans. But that Silver Age wave of comic fandom that coincided with things like uh, Phil Suling's 64 uh, New York Comic Con, the first one, sending Flo Steinberg to that show, Steve Ditko doing Chalk Talks. But then Stan really, when the college kids got into Marvel comics, he absolutely embraced that, was going on his lectures and that. And yeah, I think really did help um, midwife uh, the second wave of, of comic book fandom and that led to the Marvel or the modern comic fandom. Well, and, and I think that, you know, there's so much of Stan's personality imprinted on Marvel is yeah. even if you want to point out all the creations that Kirby and Ditko made uh, and I'm and I and I don't want to come across as like a Stan basher you know I, no. I I just sort of see him as what I find interesting about him it, to be blunt is not the stand that he created that the man the Excelsior face front all that stuff that I think people love about him I, I'm find it I find the real him more interesting I guess that's the point that's sort of what I'm fascinated about totally uh, is that is that I is that I, I get that he's an act for the most part, and I know that a lot of people have had very positive experiences with him. In fact, I think most of the people that you know of the modern era who've who've had associations with him have had nothing but wonderful, absolutely uh, associations with him. Um, but you know the the. the when you had Jack Kirby going through the fight to get his artwork back, when he was having those problems with Marvel, uh, all these various spats with Ditko, uh, it, it's clear that he wasn't interested in getting involved. At some point, you have to contend with the fact that his two greatest collaborators he had terrible relationships with and had yeah. awful falling out you know, yeah. with, with them. And uh, the acrimony on their part particularly lasted for years. And, you know, presumably part of the reason that Stan was not as acrimonious about it was because, well, he was a company guy and, you know, benefited financially in a way neither Kirby nor Ditko ever did. Absolutely. So I'm not one of these rabid, you know, anti-Stan people, but by the same token, you can't just wave that stuff off and say, oh, but he, I love his cameos in the Marvel movies. Oh, I loved it when he used to in introduce, you know, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. No, it's, he's a complicated man. Well, now, pointing out, as you did, the Kirby uh, getting his artwork back, it was just a couple years ago, and I think it was a Hollywood memorabilia or, uh, you know, kind of a collectible reality show, and Stan was on, and they went to a, a, one of his 
uh, warehouses of of stuff, and he unearthed all these original Fantastic Four pages that that Kirby had done, and wow. you know, and yeah, and and it's I, God, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the of the show, but it's out there, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners remember seeing this. And and yeah, it was just kind of matter of fact. Oh yeah, I've got a warehouse and I've got original art, and it's like, well, isn't that interesting? And well, I think what people need to understand who are listening to this, the sort of the import of what you're saying, is that the executives. It's not like Jack Kirby gave Stanley those pages; right. he kept them. Yes, and and so <laughs> when people are financially struggling, and Ditko famously used his original art for cutting boards, so we'll leave Ditko out of this. But for Kirby, Kirby specifically, it becomes a financial issue because later on, and you know, sure, at the time they didn't know how valuable the stuff was going to be. I absolutely understand that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, although, as you point out, John, that that the sort of the Comic Con scene and the early fan scene was starting by the at the same time Marvel was. Of course, it was. Uh, so you know, it, it's not just some like, oh, look at all this, you know, uh, cute artwork that I'm going to hang out for some of. Yeah, dude, that's not yours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you should have yeah. that back. Well, know? or again, it's the companies. He right. is the essentially is the company, exactly, and and yeah, and just kind of kept. So it is going to be interesting. I have a feeling that a lot of Silver Age Marvel work is going to suddenly be unearthed as they go over Stan's estate. And again, forgive me if this sounds insensitive as we're speaking about him as he as he passed away. But I do think, again, I'm, I use the Orson Welles comparison, Stanley Kubrick. There's a great. New documentary about uh, one of his chief assistants. Gabe Hardman was just tweeting about it today, and it's on Netflix. I haven't gotten it to yet. Quincy Jones, uh, the documentary that uh, his daughter uh, just made, is an amazing thing. And that's the thing. Stan is a complicated person. And I don't say these things with any disrespect, and I'm sure Fred, as he already said, that we're not trying to be haters. But it's interesting. It's a, He's a very interesting person. And and you know something? We'll let CNN and, and the BBC and the USA Today and all the other things, you know, give you give you the glossy uh, obit that he deserves because it is it's two sides of the coin and it's very interesting and so let's cover both sides of the coin. So no, I again I, I find his life fascinating. I know that Colleen Doran and wasn't it Evan Year uh, were working on a Stan Lee biography. I think they probably still Peter, are. I think it was Peter David. Oh, it was Peter David. Excuse I think me. It okay. Came out. Yeah. Oh, did did it finally come out? I believe it came out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I've been wrong before, though. No, no. Jesus, man. Well, you're too busy doing the entire history of comics. What are you talking about? So, no, it's, a, you know, yeah. So, I mean, and then, you know, as, as Marvel changes hands over the years, Stan kind of, you know, uh, has that p- period where he's, you know, uh, like we said, the, the goodwill ambassador of Marvel. There was that very ugly period in the 90s when they were kind of estranged. And Avi Arad kind of uh, helped smooth things out and kind of made him, uh, you know, chairman emeritus. And uh, they set up a very nice, comfortable uh, pension for Stan and for, for Joan as well. And in fact, uh, their daughter. They they rightly recognized that it's much better for Marvel to have Stanley on their side than not on their side. Yeah. Pub- public relations wise. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the movies and especially with Avi Arad, when the movie started and stuff. Yeah. This you know, great period that we all know his final years as showing up, you know, in those Alfred Hitchcockian sort of cameos that were, you know, continue to be a lot of fun. I have a feeling we still will probably see a handful of them. Uh, you know, it's kind of like Tupac, you know, Stan, Stan will still survive uh, cinematically, I think, for probably a couple more movies. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then obviously, you know, he sort of yeah. divided his time between, you know, being, you know, uh, I guess, I mean, essentially, it's like the equivalent of like the Queen of England, right? Your ceremonial head of state, like you yes. go and have receptions and stuff. <laughs> you don't have power, but you just kind of like, you know. Well, yeah, because exactly. Stuff. Yeah, well, and I don't even think he was probably interested anymore in the day-to-day stuff as he moved on to that more ambassador role. Well, right. And so what you're talking about, and this is why, you know, I think this is the other thing that sort of makes people's head, heads explode, is that you're talking about a guy when he was about 39 in 61, I believe. He did he, – basically his entire life was living off one decade of his life, right? Because it, yeah. that was that was the period in which he ran – he creatively ran Marvel. Inter- inter- and interesting timing too, kind of in that same – I mean within a year or two on both sides – of the Beatles period. I mean, that's the thing stands sure. stands impact on the sixties into the early seventies. Yeah. Cannot be questioned. And like you said, literally the most famous person to come out of comics. And one other thing, Starenko was in Chicago doing a pulp show and mm-hmm. somebody asked him, this was around the time that Stan was doing those stories for DC, the just imagine stories. And, okay. A person asked uh, Storenko, he's like, isn't it a shame to see Stan and have him involved in these lesser works at this point in his career based on all the great things he did? And Storenko had the perfect answer, and it's true. And he said, you know, Stan's been writing comics since 1940, 41, whatever it was, 39. And he said he has written probably five to 10,000 stories of every genre from Millie the Model and Patsy Walker to the Westerns, the horror stories, of course, the superhero stuff. He's like, so it's like a songwriter. He goes, you know, you'll kind of forgive him if a, a couple of the new ones aren't as snappy as, you know, the original ideas he had over those decades. And it's true. It's like, yeah, man, just calm down. I always make the point. Too. Uh, you know, I, I, Go respect, ahead. I respect that. But I, I, I think that part of what that questioner is reacting to is that later in life, Stan became one of these guys who got his name slapped on things. Yeah. Like he, he was a human marketing tool. Yes. Which was what he had ended up conceiving himself to be. If you have this sort of idealized image of him, which obviously Steranko does not, um, nor, there's no reason he would, you know, since he was one of the artists directly working, understand, right? At the original Marvel, you know, you, that it, it's not said because that's what he always did. Like that's literally his life. Yes, you know? was slapping his name on stuff, you know, and not that he didn't do anything to deserve it, and not that he didn't earn the right to do that, but that that was his mo from the very beginning. Stan Lee presents, you know, that yes. how strong, you know that that was on Marvel Comics for 30, 40 years, well after he left the company. Yes. <laughs> and he wasn't he, presenting Jack, you know. That's 100 percent true. <laughs> the uh, Will Eisner uh, in his um, conversations with Frank Miller that Dark Horse put out, they talked about Stan Lee and Eisner said the same thing. And he said, I think more of Stan as a promoter than I do as a, a pure writer. And he meant that with no disrespect. He's just like he's a great showman. And, in fact, at one point tried to convince Eisner to come and run Marvel, which I think was a very interesting idea and wonder what would have happened with Marvel under Will Eisner's guidance. Well, and, you know, it's like the – to write a quick email while we're talking. Sure, buddy. We can take a pause, and well, and we we can wrap up and get to uh, 
talking about con con artists and everything too, and other things. Uh, sure. Sorry, where do we leave off? I'm I'm back. I'm with you. <laughs> Sorry. My my thing was I I, I ended with uh, you know t- uh, Eisner uh, possibly taking over Marvel and you know what that might have looked right. like, and then you were starting something. Yeah, yeah, and him being a promoter and stuff. And I mean, you know, uh, sadly, you know. No one deserves no one deserves this, but to be just surrounded by the amount of grifters and con men he was at the end of his life, totally very Lord. sad. Uh, and that is the you know that's the dark side of that kind of yeah. you know lifestyle is you end up going down that cul de sac. And I will say that just just you know that I believe the news broke around two o'clock in the afternoon New York City time, which is where I live. I was very gratified to see the Washington Post. I think both Washington Post and New York Times described him as the co-creator of Spider Man. Oh, that's good. That's good. There you go. It's the co-creator. It's a lot of co-creator stuff. Uh, people are – but that is a result of 20 years, 30 years of Joe Kirby partisans and historians pounding the drum of like, you know, he didn't – mostly every single person in, the, in who knows Stan Lee assumes he draws. Right, right. You know, they assume that he drew it. And that he's like Charles, because everyone's conception of, of a, somebody who creates comics is like Charles Schultz, you know, a guy, right. guy sitting there at the table with the board, uh, writing, pencing, inking, lettering, whatever. Totally. And, you know, ultimately, Stan should be uh, heralded and credited for what he did do. But even while he was alive, his legend got, you know, revised to the point where a lot of that stuff that is not something that he did got, you know, like classically, you know, Kirby was furious because Cannon was doing a Captain America movie in the eighties. And there was this huge, you know, ads and variety that said Captain America created by Stan Lee, which of course is a hundred percent not true. Since That's you know, right. Because he was 16 years old when, <laughs> when Captain America was created and Joe Simon and Jack Kirby were his bosses. So yep. obviously Stan doesn't have control over, the press, you know, or what movie uh, promoters do, but he did create the environment that allowed those kind of statements to be made without thinking. And and frankly, the person who made that ad probably assumed it, thought it was true. You know what I mean? Absolutely, he's not, he's not trying to you know put anything over on anybody. And it took a long time for Stan to start correcting. I, well, you like you said, well, there were he, there were efforts in the in the past. But they were, you know, I don't know. And again, also, maybe it was that, you know, there might be the odd article about Marvel and Stan might say something, but it didn't have the constant. It wasn't part of the 24-hour news cycle as Marvel became, certainly with the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies moving forward. Yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is, is that from the early 60s on, the one person's name that was on every single Marvel comic was Stan's. Right, and he, and he was the and he was the he was the threat. So there's no, it's no surprise that everyone assumed. immediately assumed he was doing the whole thing or was largely responsible for the bulk of it. And again, God bless his smarts for doing that because I do think that that gave Marvel a brand that was distinct and and it would not. I feel confident saying it would not have been as successful without that brand. I completely agree. Absolutely. So no, man. That, you know. that that's sort of the complexity of the man, right? Is yeah. is the, the the promotion that helps also hurts some people. 
you know. Right. Some people get hurt in the process as he was promoting himself. Exactly. No, it's, a, again, yeah, a complicated man who made his mark and deserves the accolades but also deserves uh, the full story. And it's And, again, and it's a shame – that whether and again, I don't mean to, you know, disrespect him, but, you know, in, in later interviews, it would be Stan, can you tell us what happened when X and in fairness, this is a man that was in his late 80s to, to mid 90s that, yeah, that memory isn't always great, but it's a shame because I really do feel like there is a hole in terms of what really happened to get everybody's side of the story. And, uh, you know, I mean, we've got Kirby on record. We've got Ramita Sr. on record. Some of the other Marvel bull- bullpen people, you know, stated their case. It would be nice to get a full balance and hear all sides. Yes, but, you know, a lot of that stuff is, but, but a lot of stuff is lost to time, right? Yeah, exactly. And Stan has notoriously had a terrible memory for decades. Yeah. And has a tendency to tell the same. Like, I just saw somebody online tweeted uh, – uh, where does this Excelsior come from? And and Stan was like, well, everyone keeps ripping off my catchphrases, uh, so I decided to come up with one that uh, that people can spell, so they couldn't steal it from me. Like he just made up an answer. You know what I mean? Like it's like Stan, it's the it's the state motto of New York. That's what Excelsior is. Just say. Oh, it. I had no idea of that. Just That's amazing. It. That's where it comes from. You That's know, fantastic. It's so hard to admit it. You I know? thought our it's also assumed- flag. I saw, I assumed Arthur's sword and the uh, the whole idea of you know power, the power of Excelsior and everything that it, you know it's a powerful word. That's crazy. Yeah, I love that. That Freddie, that's awesome, man. Yeah. Okay. So, well, you you, so you know, forty nine of the other states are the people. The people right now in Iowa are going. Oh, I didn't know that. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's no live free or die. But, I'm hip, <laughs> but uh, it's still pretty good. That's fantastic, man. Well, seriously, exactly. Now, the rest of the story, I think uh, the rest of the listeners know. But I really appreciate us taking this time and yep. and really, you know, going over this. And and yeah, Freddie, you're the you were the right man. We we had this. Send your angry emails anyway. to John at Word Absolutely. No, and honestly, I will. I'll I'll assume I'll assume all full blame if people found this portion of the conversation That's disrespectful right. in any way. Um, I like I like we said, Stan was a complex man. We all admired him. We all appreciate what he did for comics. It's not the whole story, though, if all you c- concentrate on are Fuzzy Uncle Stan and, and his cute cameos and just the cliff notes. There's more to the story, and that's what we hope to provide with this conversation. Moving on. Yes. <laughs> the reason why Fred uh, was uh, initially going to come on today was to – and I still want to do this because I think it would make an excellent Christmas present. Fred's new novel, The Con Artist – it's uh, fantastic, man, and I really love uh, the richness of establishing. It's a murder mystery that happens at San Diego Comic Con. Give us the ten cent pitch. You just did it, man. Uh, All right, there you well go. Well done. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, a very famous comic artist uh, who is sort of this rootless person who lives at comic cons. Like he doesn't actually have a house; he just goes from comic con to comic con, sure. sketching and he put it up by the cons. Uh, he winds up at San Diego Comic Con, and his er- editor is murdered, and he's the prime suspect. And so he's spending the entire con both sort of trying to solve the mystery as well as trying to find the mysterious uh, pedicab driver, the woman pedicab driver who is his only alibi. <laughs> there you go, man. And that's and that's what I mean. It is such a richly environmental, you know, uh, a story. You really 
as as someone who's a vet of San Diego and stuff, and certainly not to the extent that you likely are. Uh, but you know, I've gone to a, over ten convention, you know, San Diego, so I feel like I kind of know the lay of the land. Right. It is so perfect uh, to read on the way to a convention, especially uh, for next summer for San Diego. But also, um, I forget now who the narrator is of your uh, the audio version of the book. Uh, as do I. I feel oh, okay. I, I had it. I'll I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll bring it up on my uh, on my uh, computer as we uh, as we have our conversation. But truly, I mean, you really could immerse yourself in this story. And if you've never been to San Diego before, it you accurately give the full description of the entire experience from the airport into Artist Alley into the various. Uh, you know, uh, restaurants and clubs surrounding the city and how the entire real city really dresses up for Comic-Con in a way that even New York, which I think in the last couple of years is starting to catch up. But no, it, it can't compare to the way, you know, the town is taken over by right. Comic-Con and you and you really convey that environment really, really well. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it was really, I mean, I've been in this business for over 10 years and it was really a distillation of, I mean, most of the stuff in the book, other than sort of the out and out sort of, I like to call it a geek noir. Um, <laughs> most of it's stuff that's actually happened to people I know or happened to me personally. I believe uh, it. The crazier it is in the book, the more likely it is to have actually happened. Uh, and what I find sort of fascinating about it is that the con experience for the pros is very structured. Like there's almost a there's almost like a, a week long, I don't know what the, there's like a Mardi Gras feeling to out of it, of where you do this thing on Thursday and this thing on Friday and this thing on Saturday night. And it was just fun to sort of have that sort of specific environment and, and, and put a mystery story into it. Absolutely, man. The hotels that we not only stay at, but it hosts the parties, the after hours at night. Right. And how, yeah, literally like, you know, okay, it's, I believe it's Thursday night. Though. All right, we're all at the Bayfront for Thursday night and, you know, or for Saturday, Thursday, yeah, for Thursday and Friday, of course, is the Eisners also at the Bayfront. But right. you know, you try and hang out in, in the lobby post awards, and you get to see everybody and hang out with everybody for a quick hour. Things like that, Hyatt, the way that it's its uh, destination, uh, it's it's yeah, it's perfect, man. And and again, also the whole idea of that this guy's alibi is this pedicab driver, yeah, uh, omnipresent at, at San Diego and and ridiculous, but but they're there. And um, yeah, it's it's great, man. No, I love it. It's it's a terrific book, and also it's as you say, geek noir. It's kind of a continuation. It's a different story, but uh, ten little comedians, right? Isn't you know that wasn't that your first kind of yeah? Ten dead comedians. Was, ten dead comedians. Was, yeah, it's sort of a, a pop culture mystery. Yeah, I like this. Is this? Uh, do you want to continue in this vein? Yeah, I mean, I'm chatting with Quirk, uh, Quirk Books out of Philly. They're distributed Random House. They're published both tending comedians and, and the Connors. We're talking about doing another thing right now, and uh, we'll see if it comes about. That's excellent, man. That's really, really cool. Uh, can't like I said, truly, I can't recommend it enough. It's an excellent uh, novel that I think would make a fantastic Christmas present and for someone in the in the uh, involved in the hobby. Go on. We should also point out that it's an illustrated novel. Please, yes, thank you. To shout out to my pal Tom Fowler, who I've done a bunch of comics with, who provided absolutely. The main character is a comic book artist, and so he's sketching the sketchbook things that he sees as he goes about the con. And those sketches that Tom Fowler drew actually provide clues to the mystery. Absolutely, and and yeah, and uh, Tom is always fantastic. You know, it's been years since I've had Tom on, and we've exchanged the occasional Twitter back and forth and stuff. But I I got to get Tom back on. I love that guy. He's so funny, so smart. And uh, yeah, man. I mean, you and uh, 
and uh, also uh, Tom King. Uh, uh, wonderful collaborations with Tom. That's right. That's right. Follow illustrated Tom's novel. That's right. Yep. Uh, once a uh, once a crowded sky is uh, King's uh, novel from back in the day. Yep. Um, and I also like comparing uh, your novel too. Uh, Paul Kupperberg just did a recent uh, comic book mystery as well. Oh yeah. And and it's set in the fifties. Okay. And it's yeah, and it's set during that that rough period, as we said, of the Wortham period and everything. Uh, yeah. So I um yeah I'm I'm really glad when these things kind of pop up and they're and they're quality stories and even just any sort of uh, prose novels that come out that still kind of embrace either the comic book fandom or the history of comics Cavalier and Clay certainly another great example Michael Chabon um, you know yeah I, I I think those things are always great when they come out and they're and they're genuinely great so I can say con artist is. Part of the oeuvre that uh, is <laughs> representing the hobby quite well. Yep. So nice going, man. That's excellent. What else is going on? What's happening? Uh, can you talk about anything else right now that's uh, coming out soon? Not really. Uh, I have a my lovely wife, Crystal, and I have a webtoon. Line webtoon is doing a comic of ours called Eat Fighter. It's about uh, it's Fight Club meets Food Network. It's about illegal underground uh, competitive eating. Hilarious uh, recipe in every episode. Uh, it's a lot of fun. That's it. You can get that at, at Line Webtoon. How is uh, that going? Let's talk for a second about Webtoon because really, you're over there. Dean Haspiel is over there. Yep. Uh, Sanford Green, uh, Riley Brown, Stanley had a strip. That I had no idea Stan had a Webtoon. That's amazing. Yep. And, am I right? This is a Korean company, correct? It is. Yeah. And that's cool because they have been, you know, very quiet. Well, certainly quietly from the U.S. market. But I know that, like, even before tablets, uh, the Koreans were creating content for cell phones, like for like ebooks that specifically were for cell phones, things like that. And I find it really interesting, just generally, that uh, the content makers in Korea were, were thinking along those lines. And it seems like uh, no, the the line webtoons are, are doing great. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to do. Uh, I get a lot of fun feedback. Uh, it's it's a different way of working because it's you know designed for the phone. So instead of pages, obviously, or even the panel panel to transitions, like if you read it on Comixology, uh, on Webtoon, it's just a single strip. So the artist Fernando Pinto and Crystal and I are having a interesting time, sort of figuring out you know how to adapt the the some of the conventions, the medium to to that format. Cool, you know. Like the obvious one being a splash page or a double page spread, you know, you go big on the printed page to indicate things are amazing and, you know, right. things are happening. Unfortunately, uh, you, when you do try to do that on a phone, you actually get smaller. Right. So, so a much more powerful tool visually, composition wise, in the cell phone is the close up. Exactly. You know, and I, so it I really was having. It changes the idiom of, of comic storytelling, which is interesting. I, I was just telling someone. I don't think it was on a Word Balloon episode. I think it was just a conversation, and we were talking about that was the concern. Oh, it was. It was another podcaster, and he was like just saying, I don't know if I want to get into you know the culture wars today in terms of subjects for comics. And I said, yeah, but that's what's happening now. And I said, in a different way, when digital comics were first on cell phones before the tablet was really produced commercially, that was my same concern and said, well, what happens to the splash page? Because now your your reading surface is only the size of a, a baseball card, 
So, so, you know, yeah, what does that mean for panel progression? And as you say, now the impact is the close up as opposed to the splash page when you're, when you're drawing and writing for the cell phone. No, it's a, again, yeah, it's it. And again, this was before the tablet. Then the tablet came out and it's like, all right, well, that's about the same size as a comic page. Right. You know, splash pages can, you know, retain their greatness once again. But yeah, I was wondering, you know, again, I was short sighted, didn't know the tablet was coming. And I'm like, well, yeah, what happens? What happens to the storytelling? So that I can appreciate that. That's very interesting. Very cool. Do you layer? Does he layer, the artist? And do you start with a static image? And then as you uh, progress, do you do you add layers where all of a sudden there is a punch and maybe, uh, you know, uh, a letter-style kind of effect, a pow or a biff uh, after the uh, fact, or a, a gun firing? move in any way? What's that? Well, not so much that the image might move. As um, kind of like when DC uh, was starting to do digital comics, and also uh, Mark Wade and Peter Kraus at uh, oh, with, I, with I see what you're saying. No, that you can only really do those effects if you're clicking through the comic and you aren't. There's no clicking involved. You're literally, it's literally just a long ass strip that you're coming through. So there's okay. no clicking. There's no movement. There's no the 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 strip is loaded. You create the strip. Now, now this is getting super wonky. Like before, we're getting into history wonkiness. Now we're getting into well, this is the other side of the conversation. That's all right. Comics. (laughs) So they're created and illustrated with uh, you. You do things called artboards and illustrated that 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 slice the strip up into about eh, between forty and fifty slices or screens or whatever you're going to call it. Even though that's in fifty parts, what the app does as you're scrolling is it loads in each screen. I'm with underneath you. it in a microsecond sure. fast. So it looks like a continuous, you know. If, I'm with you. If the yeah. Flash was trying to scroll through it, he could probably do it and there would be a slight delay. <laughs> Normal no, I understand. Normal man such as ourselves, uh, it just, it's, it's, yeah. it's just to load. So, you know, you're like looking you said, it's like a long – and yeah, yeah, so, like, so you can't really do those kinds of effects because okay. – those uh, those are really when you have panel to panel transitions. Okay, well then there are no panels. Literally, it's just one big strip. Okay, yeah, it's like it's like what Scott McCloud was kind of describing yes. with yep. understanding comics. One hundred percent. Yeah, so that's and that's interesting that that method has survived in this format as opposed to the other digital comics, the layer progression that I'm describing, and also the those um, are still around. Of course. Well, and also the directed, you know, panel to panel progression that Comixology now provides and stuff. So, no, it is. It's interesting to see how everybody, you know, Made Fire is doing its own thing with uh, with comics as well. Actually, I, I keep meaning to check in with Made Fire and seeing where their progression is. But, yeah, it's it, it is interesting that there's still different ways of doing, you know, digital comics and everything. And again, yeah. this was the original way that McLeod was just talking about. So very cool. I like Absolutely. It. So, well, that's awesome, man. Is uh, you know anything else that we can uh, promote? Uh, not really. I, I, okay. uh, nothing. Everything is all not yet announced. All We're right. too far away to really talk about now. <laughs> Are you? I mean, have you have you seen? Uh, you know, obviously we're in we're in the midst of the new television season. What are you watching if you have time? Uh, I become like a pure sports guy. <laughs> like I, I watch hilarious. Go on. And uh, I, I, what am I watching that I'm liking? I really like Camping, Jennifer Garner's HBO comedy. I think it's true. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think that's really well done. Um, 
Have you seen uh, Homecoming? I'm playing yet? Red Dead Redemption Two, which takes up all of my sitting in front of the TV time. So that's I'm fantastic. A lot of uh, I'm watching a lot of narrative television. Okay, I understand. That's great. I um, you know what a show, and it's been a few months since it came out. And here's a guilty pleasure, and I I really can't believe I'm even saying this. I love The Good Cop on Netflix. Okay, it's a, it's a weekly. It could have been a weekly procedural on on USA. Very it's cool. of of all people, Josh Groban, the singer, and Tony Danza as a father son. Uh, Danza is a disgraced former cop that went to jail mm-hmm. and was dirty, and his son is this straight arrow to the point of ridiculous uh, uh, actions. Uh, great cop. Uh, they're in New York. And they live together, and it's kind of an odd couple vibe going. And I normally hate Tony Danza post Taxi because I okay. really I, I did love Taxi. Taxi was a great show. It was not a Who's the Boss guy or his subsequent shows, right? But but it, his his usual Tony persona really comes through and works in this thing. And yeah, Josh Groban is not the greatest actor in the world, but I don't know. They 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 come off very charming, and it's also written by. The people that wrote Monk and some of the other lighter chewing gum kind of USA procedurals that they did in the years. And, yeah, it's it's just I, I love binge watching and I love the, the idea of, you know, storylines carrying over and being very important each week but and each episode. But that said, every now and then it is nice to just have an hour of chewing gum that you can just enjoy. And then, you know, it's good disposable entertainment. And that's what this show is, The Good Cop. I, I really enjoy it. Excellent. Yeah, I'll, there you I'll go. Keep my eyes peeled for it. <laughs> and the docs on Netflix, as I was describing when we were talking about Stan, can't can't uh, recommend the Orson Welles documentary enough. It's called the the Love Me When I'm Dead. Okay, uh, okay, I've seen the I've seen the trailer for that. I will have to check that out. Absolutely it's amazing. And the Quincy uh, one is is fantastic. Oh my god, such great archival footage and interviews. And Frank Sinatra just giving it up to Quincy. I mean, it, you know, when, when, when Frank Sinatra speaks about another genius and is really like, I can't believe how amazing this guy is, that's right. always, like, really great to hear. And just the way that his career touched everyone from the jazz age of the 50s all the way up till today and, and still such an important uh, creative figure and force in, uh, in pop culture. I mean, I, I love Quincy Jones and always have and. This is a tremendous tribute documentary. That's awesome. Yep. There you go. So those are my recommends. All right, Freddie. I I I won't uh, waste more of your time. No, this I'll, is uh, fantastic. Thank you for having me and getting me in trouble with the comics internet. I love it. Well, no, well, truly, man. Again, given your position as a comic historian, uh, it just happened to be for you know fortunate for both of us to have this opportunity to not only promote the con, the con artist. Excellent book, Quirk Books. Get it now. You can uh, get the uh, you know soft cover version of the book, or you can get the digital uh, version of the book. And it's the audio book. Everywhere. And the audio book, absolutely. So uh, I will see in the postscript who the narrator is of the audio book. But, uh, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, as always, Fred, thank you very much. Uh, we'll come back in a few months and uh, talk about something new. I love it. So there you go, our unauthorized look at the life and times of Stan Lee. With Fred Van Lenti, I thank Fred for uh, his candor and uh, exploration with me about uh, Stan's career. I'm sure we left things out. We were both uh, working extemporaneously on this and, uh, you know, spoke about our feelings and fascination with uh, the full picture of Stan Lee. Because, again, as, as I said, 
if if you want the uh, you know just the, the the golden memories and the top hits, there's going to be plenty of outlets in the in the days uh, that follow that will do a much more comprehensive job. And uh, certainly, we're getting those in initial obits from uh, some of the news outlets that you know only only play the hits and only play the highlights. But uh, like I said, Stan had such a fascinating career. I didn't want it to uh, go completely. Uh, unregarded, and I really wanted to look at the whole man, the whole picture. Um, my thoughts go to his family and friends who knew Stan much better than this comic fan ever did. Um, I admired him as as many of us readers did, and uh, again, as I learned more about him, I only found him more fascinating uh, as as a figure, as a creative force, and uh, you know, one of my Santa Clauses, as I always like to say about uh, these older uh, creators who, uh, you know, sparked my interest as a child and continued to fuel them uh, through their lives. And their legacies live on. And we all know that uh, Stan's legacy is in uh, great hands. And uh, the Marvel Universe, uh, the future has never been brighter. And I'm really glad, as I'm sure we all are, that Stan got to see the amazing success and turnaround that Marvel made from near bankruptcy in the late 90s uh, to uh, the dominant force that it is today. I mean, we all know it's right up there with the Star Wars franchise. It's changed the face of film. It continues to change the face of television and streaming. Uh, the future is bright, and Stan led the way. Thanks for all your contributions, Stan. Today's episode of Word Balloon is brought to you by Aftershock Comics and the League of Word Balloon listeners. I thank you very much for your support in listening to Word Balloon, and uh, hopefully uh, today's conversation was another one that you appreciated. Um, more to come this week. Like I said, uh, Stan's death kind of uh, made me uh, rearrange the schedule to accommodate this conversation and uh, produce it today with Fred Van Lenty's help. So thanks again to Fred. Thank you for listening. Questions or comments? I'm right here for you. John at wordballoon.com is my email address. Uh, you can acknowledge me on uh, Facebook or Twitter and uh, tell me what you thought of the episode today. And, you know, I hope, I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, thanks a lot for listening. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018.